electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 179 of the coronavirus crisis, we start with breaking news tonight from the airline industry. Our Phil LeBeau, following the money there, joins us live on the Newsline. Phil, what can you tell us tonight? Scott, we have six airline and aviation unions now writing a letter to the leaders of Congress asking them to extend payroll aid through March 31st. Just to refresh your memory, you've got payroll aid that has kept these uh, basically thousands, tens of thousands of workers employed despite the drop-off in traffic for the airlines. You've got the pilots, the flight attendants, the machinists, as well as the transport workers union, the communication workers union, and the transportation trades union. They're all part of this letter saying, look, the $32 billion that helped keep the airlines alive that you awarded back in March and in April, that expires at the end of September, we want you to extend it again to March 31st of next year. All of this comes at a time when you look at passenger levels, they have not snapped back. At the drop-off that we saw in March and April, when it got as low as 87,000 passengers uh, in a day in early April, it's now averaging about 500 to 550,000 passengers a day. And while that is an improvement, it's still down about 80% compared to the same day last year. So the airlines have not seen the snapback in business. They're still losing tens of millions of dollars every day. If you take a look at shares of United, there's news tonight that United is increasing its debt offering. Remember the $5 billion that's being backed by the company's uh, Mileage Plus frequent flyer program? That's now going to be increased in size up to $6.8 billion because there's plenty of appetite out there for more of this airline debt. Bottom line is this, Scott. You've got these workers who are saying, if you don't extend this aid, tens of thousands of airline and aviation workers are likely to be losing their job come October 1st. I'm not sure Congress is going to say, we're ready to write you another check for $32 billion. Refresh my memory, Phil. Was it American Airlines that said at the end of September it was going to have to lay off a bunch of employees? All of them have. No, nobody has. And they said that when they went to Capitol Hill back in March, Scott. Everybody has made it clear they need to be substantially smaller unless you see a complete return in traffic levels. That's not going to happen. And they've been very clear, very upfront, that they will not need as many pilots, flight attendants, machinists, ramp workers. They simply will need to be smaller airlines. Phil, we'll have to keep our eye on this story, see how these stocks end up trading tomorrow. That's Phil LeBeau. As I said, following the money there in the airline industry, Phil, thank you. Another big story tonight, Florida and Texas halting reopening plans because of large-scale virus spikes in those states. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back. It's good to see you. What is your reaction to this news now, not only from Texas, but from Florida as well? 
Well, look, I think it's prudent, but Texas also announced today that they were suspending elective surgeries in their hospitals. And so they're really putting the onus on the healthcare system to absorb a lot of this because not only is the healthcare system now grappling with increased caseloads coming into those hospitals, but the hospitals are going to lose a lot of revenue because they need to suspend elective surgeries. So they didn't roll back any of the openings. They just suspended further reopenings. But restaurants right now in Texas are at 75 percent capacity. Um, bars at 50 percent capacity. Sporting events, 50 percent capacity. Rodeos, 50 percent. Um, nail salons, hair salons, uh, piercing salons, even hair loss treatment centers are at 100 percent without any social distancing requirements. So effectively in Texas right now, you can't get a hip replacement, um, but you can get hair loss treatment. And so I think what Texas needs to do, and these other states as well, but Texas is a good example, is figure out where the virus is spreading and take more targeted but aggressive steps. And so if Texas thinks that it's the bars, and we've talked about this last night as well, they, they think the bars are a source of spread, or a congregate setting where spread is occurring, then you take action to you know, either close them or dramatically curtail business in those establishments. But you don't put all the owners on the health care system, which is what's happening right now. To, to be clear, you're saying what Texas did today does next to nothing to mitigate the spread of the virus because virtually everything in that state is already open. That's right. Um, they didn't do anything. They didn't intervene in a way that would um, do anything to put downward pressure on the spread. The spread's occurring. We don't know where it's occurring. We think it's occurring in congregate settings like bars, but it could be religious establishments. We just don't know. Um, most of the states open at some level of capacity, but what they did was they freed up capacity in the healthcare system to absorb the influx of patients. But by doing that, they also put additional pressure on that healthcare system because the hospitals that are already strained financially now can't do elective surgeries, and so they're going to lose resources, significant resources, as a result of that. So I would expect that you're going to see a lot of pushback from the healthcare establishment in the coming days um, because they can't be on the hook to absorb all the consequences of policy decisions that aren't getting made. You think that could move the governor to actually roll back some of the reopenings if the health care business in the state of Texas takes more of the lead on this now? I think what we've seen before, and we saw it in New York as well, when the providers organized and pushed back, um, that instigated political action. And so, you know, I think you're going to see the same thing potentially in Texas and other states. The healthcare system, they're prepared to take care of sick patients, but they need to do it in concert with smart policy decisions that are heading towards a better outcome. And, you know, in Texas right now, there really isn't an intervention that I see, short of the governor now encouraging uh, mask use outside in outside settings. But there really hasn't been a robust policy intervention that's really going to um, be a break on the continued spread. So they didn't extend the openings, but most of the states open and whatever spreads occurring is occurring under the auspices of of the policy decisions they already made. Um, you know, they're enforcing it a little bit better now with the bars. They've gone in, they find some bars. They put in 30 day suspensions on some about 17 liquor licenses and bars that weren't, weren't adhering to the uh, distancing requirements. That that's you know, that's something, but it's not going to have a really profound impact. They have a lot of spread underway. That's the state of Texas. How would you characterize what's taking place in the state of Florida tonight? Well, it's similar. I mean, if you look up, they don't report hospitalizations, so we don't know how pressed their healthcare system's getting. Their testing is down week over week, actually. They have a lot of cases. I think in some respects, Florida might be in a more troubling situation 
with respect to their community spread. They have multiple hotspots right now, and they're probably not measuring it as well as Texas is. If you look at Miami, I believe Miami had almost 900, has almost 900 hospitalizations across Miami-Dade County, which is one of the uh, places that reports daily hospitalizations. And so they're getting pressed as well. I mean, both Texas and Florida have a lot of healthcare capacity, so they can absorb a lot of infection. But they have mounting cases, they have community spread, and it's going to be hard to get that under control without taking some more aggressive targeted. It doesn't need to be a statewide shutdown, but it needs to be targeted interventions. The other states I'd be very worried about right now are South Carolina, Alabama, Arkansas, small states that don't have the health care capacity but have mounting infections. South Carolina and Alabama each recorded over 1,000 infections today. That's a lot on a per capita basis. You have to be very worried about those states as well because states like California, which has a pretty big outbreak in, in, in Southern California, Texas, Florida, have very big health care systems. They can absorb a lot of infection tragically, but small states can't do that. And it's hard to move patients between states. I want you to stay with me, Dr. Gottlieb, if you would. I want to get on the ground in Florida tonight. And for more on the surge of cases there, we're joined now by Dr. Cheryl Holder. She's on the front lines in Miami. That's a city that's been especially hard hit in the state. Dr. Holder, welcome. It's nice to see you this evening. Hi, good evening. You heard you heard Dr. Gottlieb, uh, my conversation with with him, I presume he's quite concerned about what's happening in the state of Florida. Take us to Miami. How concerning is it to you? You're on the front Um, lines. We're equally concerned and similar situation where we haven't really curtailed opening and we're going to continue opening based on our governor's projections. Um, What happened for us is that we reopened without really good, clear, consistent messaging and without really emphasizing how important it is to follow the social guidelines, the distancing, the mask wearing, the not congregating and not socializing in the way that it happened. So much like Texas, we also suffered some of the resurgence. Um, My hospital system recently announced that some of their increases in hospitalization wasn't so much that the patients had COVID, but they were on for other reasons. They were admitted for other reasons and also detected COVID. But that doesn't still leave the basic dangers that we see because we have a large vulnerable population here and frontline workers, essential workers who are at very high risk. So it is very concerning what has happened. You're seeing a lot of cases as well in younger people. From what I understand, statewide, ages 15 to 34 now make up more than one third of all of the cases in the state. Exactly. And we know it's because the messaging that came out is that despite um, COVID being there, it was really the elderly that would be the issue. And most people are asymptomatic and the young will be okay. And I think that messaging was accepted readily by our young people, which left them very vulnerable for infection and for not doing the activities that are really essential. And also the modeling of that behavior wasn't really consistent throughout the state. So many times if you're watching television, the modeling in whether it's law enforcement leadership did not demonstrate the importance of mask wearing and distancing. So there is a lot of concern that as we continue to open, how are we going to get this message across? And how are we going to have acceptance that this is a dangerous infection that we don't know anything about significantly? What could happen to your future? Um, Like I tell my patients, HPV was asymptomatic. And look what happens 10, 20, 30 years down the line. So unless we have better messaging 
and better guidelines, really strict guidelines saying indoors wear a mask and businesses adhere to this. We're not going to see any downturn in this surge. It's interesting that you're talking about messaging. There is so much misinformation out there in terms of the numbers going up. Some say simply because there's just more testing, so you're going to find more cases, whereas the positivity rate is alarming in Miami-Dade County. We're talking 27 percent positivity rate, what I saw today in Miami-Dade. That says widespread uh, transmission of the virus. Exactly. That's what we see. And as physicians, we are incredibly concerned. And we also would like to have real stronger messaging, consistent messaging. The Surgeon General made it on the weekend saying recommended, but it wasn't said in a way in our media that the young people are going to see. We have a very diverse population in Miami. We have Haitians, Jamaicans, different varieties of Hispanic. That means that their contact and their media it's not going to be just traditional media. What are the steps that we're taking to reach out to our population to get the message across? These are some of our concerns that it's whether you enforce a law or you make it mandatory, unless you can message it and transmit that message effectively, it's not going to be heard. So we really know that at this point, we have got to flatten the curve and immediately. And that's going to take messaging, modeling, and tracking and tracing everyone and containing the infection as rapidly as possible. So we need good data, strong data, knowing where are the hotspots, who's getting infected, how can we get to all their contacts immediately and contain it. And if there are issues that we know, we're poorer communities. Most of our poor communities live in multi-generational homes. They are out on the front line working. I have a friend in Palm Beach who told me that many of the people he saw in his ER were landscapers and workers. They weren't all the young kids playing. So it's not just kids in bars. It's also people who are working everyday jobs who we're seeing showing up with this infection. Doctor, we need the data. Dr. Holder, we wish you well. We thank you for joining us tonight, taking us to the front lines in Miami-Dade. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Dr. Gottlieb, I I turn back to you. There it is on the front lines. Uh, Your reaction to what you heard uh, tonight from uh, Dr. Holder. Well, look, I think Florida is under testing right now. And whereas in Texas, we saw the community spread happening as a result of of rising case growth. And now we're seeing the hospitals get pressed and we're seeing increased hospitalizations because there's a delay in hospitalization um, from the time of diagnosis. I think in Florida, we're going to see the consequences of the community spread that's underway there in the form of rising hospitalizations that will probably start to materialize next week. We're not picking it up as much in, in rapid case growth, although they, they're reporting 5,000 cases a day or more. So that's a lot of cases they're turning over. But they're under testing, and that's evidenced by the, the sharply rising positivity rate. And also anecdotal reports from people in the state who say they're having trouble getting tested. And testing volumes are going down uh, inexplicably. So I think we're going to start seeing next week, I hope I'm wrong, but I think we might start seeing next week um, rising hospitalizations. And that will be the real clear indication that they have wider community transmission underway. Worth remembering as well that many of the states that are seeing issues now are the ones that reopened without meeting CDC guidelines. I want to ask you closer to home where you live out in Connecticut and where we are in New Jersey thinking about the tri-state area. Yes, our cases are going down and the, and the charts all look great, but what's to say that we're not going to experience spikes like we're seeing elsewhere once we get going again, reopening bars and restaurants in, in greater magnitude? 
Well, we might, and it ta- but it takes time to build. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. The outbreaks that we see underway in states like Texas and Florida, Arkansas, Alabama, Arizona, we haven't talked about Arizona tonight. They look like they're in a difficult situation. These have been building for weeks and weeks and maybe a month or more. Um, here in New York, we're reopening against the backdrop of really having crushed the virus. There's still virus out there. If we do start to have change of transmission that lead to more community spread, it's going to take weeks and weeks for that to build. So I think we do have a July and August that will be relatively quiescent. Cases might build, but the overall prevalence here is going to be low. And my advice to people would be, you know, if you have elective procedures or things that you put off, try to get it done now because the fall, it's very unpredictable. We could have much wider transmission in the fall. Now, that said, we've had a lot of infection here in at least New York City. Um, the seropositivity probably is pretty high. You have probably 30 percent of the population in New York City that's been exposed to this. So their transmission rate isn't going to be as rapid in that part of the country as it will be in other parts of the country where you have an unexposed population. You mentioned some of your concerns about what's happening elsewhere in the South. A news item to get your opinion on tonight. The Kentucky Derby says fans are going to be allowed in some uh, magnitude. Is that a good idea? Look, I think any congregate setting's a risk, and especially one done for purely entertainment purposes. I think we really need to question doing that right now in the setting that we're in. Um, certainly something done outside is lower risk than something done inside. The highest risk uh, venues are those where we bring together large groups of people in indoor settings for sustained periods of time. I want to get to tweets in a moment, but another summer-related question. Water's impact on the virus is what? Be it salt water. We know you've said before that uh, chlorinated water um, doesn't spread the virus. What about salt water at the beach, water in general? Yeah, it doesn't spread through the water. Um, So there's no reason to believe that you'd be unsafe in a pool or in an ocean. And again, things done outside, uh, recreation activities done outside are safer. So anything that you can move outdoors, um, any kind of recreation you could do outside is going to be uh, done more safely. Let me move to uh, some tweets, uh, if I could, tonight, Dr. Gottlieb. What's the risk of outdoor socially distanced exercise with reports that the virus lingers in humid air? Low. I wouldn't be concerned about the virus being transmitted more effectively in human air. It's probably the opposite. I know there's been some mixed reporting on that. But respiratory droplets typically don't don't uh, transfer efficiently in hot, humid air. Next uh, viewer wants to know about sending their uh, children back to daycare this summer. What are your thoughts on that? Look, it's a really personal call and you need to consider what your circumstances are. A lot of people need to send their kids to daycare. I think certainly in the Northeast, the prevalence is low. We know children are less susceptible to this. Um, so you need to make an individual judgment. That said, I, will, I would submit, I don't think that this virus really has um, become epidemic in a school-age population because the first thing we did when we had epidemics was close the schools. And so we really don't have a great handle on what the risks are to young children because it hasn't probably become epidemic in that population. That said, all the data we have suggests that they're less susceptible to it, and when they do get infected, they don't mount as severe symptoms. That's not to say, though, it couldn't reach uh, epidemic uh, levels in the fall once kids are back in the school environment. And that's what we saw in Israel. When Israel reopened their schools, they had very large outbreaks in the school setting, and they had some children who got sick, and they ended up closing their schools again. So Israel is very instructive, and I think it's actually a lesson that local school districts here in the United States are going to look at very closely. Dr. Gottlieb, we'll leave it there. I'll see you next week. You be well.
That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us tonight, former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. Meantime, NFL owners meeting late today to discuss the upcoming season. Mark Gannis is an NFL insider, co-founder and president of sports marketing for Sports Court. Mark's good to see you again. Good to see you, Scott. Owners are on the call today with the commissioner. What was the outcome? Well, most of the call, as you can might imagine, had to do with the virus, uh, the protocols, some financial issues related to it. But really, it was almost exclusively uh, the, most of the call was about health and safety of players, coaches, fans, everybody in the NFL ecosystem, how they're going to handle the stadiums, how they're going to handle um, deal with media, with fans. Uh, it was a very productive call. Uh, it was, a, uh, as you might imagine, it wasn't really an owner's meeting. It was an owner's Zoom uh, conference uh, uh, arrangement. Uh, and uh, a lot of information was given to the owners. Uh, and uh, everybody came off of that call today feeling very positive about the league opening, about the protocols, and about the safety that will be in place for everyone. The league is saying tonight that training camps are expected to open on time. Perhaps that's a surprise to some, just given what we're seeing down in Texas and Florida and elsewhere, as Dr. Gottlieb and I were just speaking about. Interesting news as well regarding the first of several rows of seats and how stadiums may be forced to deal with, with that, blocking off perhaps the first six to eight rows and covering them with advertisements could help make up some of the lost revenue that you and, you and I have talked about. Yeah, it's primarily done for health and safety reasons. It's to have distances. Uh, if there are fans in the stands, it's it's uh, uh, also they don't want fans reaching over the, you know, when, when the players come in and out of the tunnels and things like that. So the primary reason was for health and safety. Uh, the second was really optics, how it looks on television. They really, you know, the NFL is very focused on how the game looks and sounds on TV. They wanted some some consistency and standardization. And then there may be there, there will be some opportunities there uh, for some uh, to offset at least a little bit of the revenue that's being lost. Let, let's talk about the, the lost revenue. Um, how are the clubs looking th- through all this? How much revenue will they be able to to make back? Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, there there really there's going to be a tr- significant loss in revenue because you're going to be limited by uh, at the stadium at, by what the uh, governments uh, allow in the buildings and not just that, but also by the CDC guidelines. Dr. Gottlieb will be happy to hear this because what they're planning to do is to have it be um, uh, limited, you know, the current CDC guidelines are 10 people in a group, no more than that, six people uh, feet apart. And the reality of that is that you're really only going to be able to fit maybe 25% of stadium capacity, even if the local government allows more. So there's going to be a significant loss in revenue uh, associated with this to the league. But the NFL... The NFL is like a great balance sheet, publicly traded company. They're in, they're in a great position to be able to withstand this because they've made so many good and conservative decisions in the past that when something like this ha- happens, they can handle it. Who's going to have the ultimate say, Mark, in terms of, of whether fans are allowed in stadiums? Is it going to be the local jurisdictions that make those rules based on what's happening in the state? Or is the commissioner going to make a blanket rule for the entire league just for the safety uh, of the clubs? Uh, the way it looks right now, and this is under the current circumstances and, and expectations, it's going to be a combination of what the local governments uh, uh, allow together with the CDC guidelines. So in some places, the local governments today would allow more than the CDC guidelines. In that case, the number will be lower. In other cases, it'll be the reverse, but it'll always be whatever the lowest number is to make things as safe as possible. For Interesting. 
Mark, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate the update. That's Mark Gannis joining us Great. once again, uh, covering all things NFL for us. We do have a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Next, the real litmus test for pro sports. One league is about to kick off its tournament this weekend. The commissioner is with us live. And safety in the Aloha State. Hawaii's lieutenant governor, who is also an ER doctor, on how his state will carefully allow visitors back to this American paradise. First, our country on Thursday night, June 25th. the horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager We're back on day 179 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. Macy's is cutting nearly 4,000 corporate and management positions, saying the pandemic has significantly impacted its business. Apple reclosing more stores because of a spike in cases. This time, it's 14 in Florida, and that makes 32 stores in five states in the past week alone. And Delta is resuming flights to China tonight, becoming the first U.S. carrier to do just that. This coming weekend on Saturday, the National Women's Soccer League will be the first pro team sport in the United States to hit the field again. The league will play in a bubble in Utah for a month-long tournament. Lisa Baird is the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, is with us live tonight from out there. Commissioner, nice to see you. It's great to be here. Looks like a great setting behind you. We see the stadium. You guys ready to do this? Yep, we're ready. You can see that we've already got signage up, the stadium's ready, um, pitch is perfect, and we've got four of our eight teams already here, and uh, today was their first day of training. Tell us the experience. Put us on the, on the pitch, uh, if you will. What's it like for the, for the players at this point? Well, it's, uh, it, it, it's exciting because the format of play that we're doing for our tournament is uh, very different from a regular season. Um, we're doing a first round of group play. Um, evenly matched schedule, and um, then we're going to advance to a really exciting um, uh, single elimination knockout tournament. So I can tell you the players are ready and they're excited to, to be doing coming back to sports. How are you housing everybody? Take me through the logistics of how this is going to work while keeping safety uh, obviously top of mind. Yeah, of course, that's the, the on top of mind of every sports commissioner right now is how can we get um, sport, live sport back, um, but do it safely. Um, since we shut down our preseason on March 10th, we've been engaged with our 15-person uh, medical task force to develop extensive medical protocols, um, which took us and advanced us um, through preseason training into training. Um, we put together a 
very frequent um, testing protocol. Each of the players had to have two negative tests before they arrived here in Utah. And um, the minute they landed on the ground, they were tested by AREP, our test lab partner. Um, and um, once they've got that, we'll be um, getting into the pitch and they will be tested throughout the 30-day tournament. Yep. I want to talk to you about some individual players, but first, one of your teams is actually not coming to the event because of some tests and concerns about the virus. Orlando is a no-show. Uh, Orlando withdrew, and it was a disappointing event for all of us here. They, were, they would have been, I think, one of the most exciting teams to watch with a mix of very experienced um, players in, at, at the world, uh, world-class level and an exciting new uh, rookie class. Um, so we're disappointed. Our thoughts are with them as they go through this uh, um, time. Um, and uh, we're just excited now for the 18s that are coming in and getting ready to play. Yeah, you'll lose some star power, too. Uh, Megan Rapinoe uh, says she's not coming because of virus concerns. The, the losing a star like that, uh, arguably the most high-profile female soccer player uh, perhaps in the world at this point. Yeah, we're sorry that Megan's not here, but um, one of our early principles was that any player um, who had concerns uh, would opt out. I think we had uh, four of the U.S. Women's National um, team opt out, but boy, we have an exciting class of um, players from all around the world. I believe 10 countries are represented with their best, as well as um, really high-profile members from the U.S. Women's National Team that are ready to hit the pitch on Saturday. And you'll have no fans, correct? We will not have fans, um, but we have a really exciting way for fans to get engaged. Um, and right here on CV CNBC, we're going to break the news that um, we are we are just announcing a new national sponsorship with Google, and um, we're really excited about it. The formal announcement goes out tomorrow, but Google and our partner CBS is going to be bringing this game to fans in a whole new way that they can connect with live sports without fans and stadiums. Interesting. Well, congratulations on the new deal. We appreciate you breaking that right here tonight on CNBC. We'll be watching. I, I gather the commissioners of all of the other major pro sports leagues are going to be doing just that as well. Commissioner, be well. Thank you. All right. That's Commissioner Elisa Baird joining us tonight. The National Women's Soccer League getting going this weekend. Here's what's coming up next on this special report. Fighting the virus in paradise. Next, Hawaii's lieutenant governor, who also happens to be an ER doctor, on what this island state will do to keep itself safe once it starts allowing visitors back. Survival instinct sets in, and, and you just sort of really go for it. And a unique move by a movie theater owner to get some of the action back during this pandemic. We're back in two minutes. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind. 
just like Hacker has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Tonight, the virus in paradise. Hawaii's unique plan to allow visitors back on their islands. All the staff, no exceptions, will be both temperature checked and wear masks. And making the movies safe. What you're likely to see if you ever go back. This CNBC special report continues. Here's Scott Wapner. The great state of Hawaii is also starting to see a pickup in cases. But since the start of the crisis, the Aloha state had mostly made it through the pandemic safely. Dr. Josh Green, an ER doctor, also happens to be the lieutenant governor, joins us tonight from Honolulu. Dr. Green, it's good to see you. You too. Thanks for having me. No new deaths since May 3rd, the lowest mortality rate in the United States. You're being called a rare success story. How have you done it? Well, we did a couple things. We isolated cruise ships as a risk very early, so that was stopped. Then we tested everybody that we could. That gave us a picture of where we were as a disease state. Then we did a 14-day quarantine uh, as of three months ago today, in fact. So three months of a 14-day quarantine for any travelers coming in or any return visitors, our own people. And that knocked the virus out pretty well. We trace everybody, and we're now getting ready for the newest innovation, which is starting August 1st. We will reopen the state, but people will have to have a test uh, within 72 hours of travel to Hawaii. And by doing all that, we keep the rate very low. We restore confidence in our economy and we get through this alive. So to make sure I understand what you're saying, I arrive at the airport and I need to show paperwork or some sort of proof that I've had a test in the last 72 hours and I'm negative and then I can come in. That's exactly right. So we're working on national partnerships with CVS. We've reached out to Walgreens, Kaiser. So you can easily get a test. You won't have to have a doctor's order. You get that test, you pay for it, and then you come to paradise with everybody else. But the good news is we will continue to have the lowest rate of COVID in the country. And for people who do vacation here and work here and live here, we can all be assured that we're in this together, that the case rates are very low so people can actually have this best experience of their lifetime in Hawaii. Will you have real-time testing available at the airport for arrivals? That's a brilliant question. The inclination for us right now, and we just announced this yesterday, is to insist that everybody out there get a test before coming. So I'm saying this to America right now. Family back in Pennsylvania, New York, California, please get your test within 72 hours of travel. 
and then you will not have to have quarantine. And that's the way we really keep the cases at a minimum. Yeah, I, I mentioned, of course, you're, you're a doctor. You're also the lieutenant governor, so you can speak on a number of, of different issues. Uh, from, from the state standpoint, do you have any idea how much revenue you lost from tourism as a result of the pandemic? I do. Well, I can give you a lot of indicators. One of the challenges of having such success keeping the virus down by locking it down was, of course, unemployment soared because tourism went down to nothing. We decreased our travelers uh, down 99.6 percent over the course of this three months, which is a shocking number. And our unemployment's at 22.3 percent. We've passed out $1.7 billion in benefits to keep people going, and we've lost hundreds of millions of dollars. So all of these things are just very real for our people on the one hand. But then, of course, we've only had 17 fatalities so that people can celebrate that victory. By opening on August 1st with the test, we expect tourism actually to pick up quite quickly because there's this pent up desire, of course, to be safe, to escape from the harsh reality of COVID, but do it safely. Yeah. How, how do we judge this uptick in cases and how concerned are you about that and how it may impact the psyche of people who want to travel there? Well, my fellow lieutenant governors and governors kind of scoff at me when I talk about going up in cases, because when we say going up, we went from like six to 17 cases. They're used to having, you know, 17 cases a minute in some cases. So We've had a, a very mild rise, and it's attributable to, of course, we had Memorial Day. We opened up some of our businesses. We did have peaceful protests here in the state of Hawaii, and all these things contributed. But we are really kind of just simmering at a very low level right now. And I can tell you this. Our ventilator use uh, has actually been very flat at 13 percent statewide, utterly low. And our intensive care unit beds have also been stable. We've only been using about 44 to 45 percent of them. So I'm monitoring multiple different variables as we look at it. So it'll be safe for people to come, but now safer than ever with the test. So I think it's been very good. We're proud of what our people did to sacrifice, but we want to reward that sacrifice with safety. Yeah, your point's well taken. It's good that you put into perspective what some call an uptick uh, is still small considering and certainly relative to what we're witnessing in some of the other states of the country. How long until you think you'll get back to normal, so to speak, in terms of, of tourism, what you're used to seeing uh, in, in Hawaii. How many years do you think that's going to take? Well, it's interesting because after 9-11, we had a very brief lull. And then people realized you were still traveling within the United States of America. And then we had a huge surge of economic activity uh, shortly thereafter. I expect something similar. Now, of course, that will depend a little bit on what occurs on the mainland. If you have a secondary surge in the fall, that, of course, could affect how much travel we can expect from anywhere. There are a lot of individuals out there, especially seniors, who are saying they may not travel for a long time, and that is some of our tourism base. I think we're looking at getting to about 50 to 60 percent of our tourism base within six months, and I think we're probably a year to a year and a half out of getting back to normal. Of course, if we get a vaccination, if we get better treatment, people will come more quickly. But we will have a safe state with a good healthcare system to greet our, our visitors like you and friends. But a lot of people just aren't going to travel probably anywhere. Sure. It's going to take a while. Uh, that's for sure. We'll check back in with you. I'm sure we will. Dr. Green, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you. It's an yes, honor. Dr. Josh Green, also the lieutenant governor of Hawaii. Here's what's coming up next. Closed. Open. Now face to face with the virus again. One gym owner's new plans after his workers got the virus. Want to make it an affordable 
thing in a very stressful time. And now playing, one movie theater owner's answer to the virus and a shutdown order. Before the break, our world on the 179th day of the coronavirus crisis. The owners of an independent movie theater in Charleston, South Carolina, were forced to close and furlough all employees back in March. But the owners adapted. And tonight, Paul and Robin Brown show us how they did it. For the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of uh, crying. Yeah, there's some crying and there was some Hendrix gin. And uh, and then we just said we just can't stop start feeling sorry for ourselves. And what can we do? We had to mark out all the spots because... It's not a traditional drive-in. There's trees. We were to trim the trees. And we had 25 spots. We figured it out. We bought an FM transmitter. We had to ask the florist. Yeah. She has a two-story building that's yeah. next door. We had to remove a dead air conditioning unit. It starts at the, at the front of the theater in your car. You've ordered your tickets online. We don't do any tickets at the door. And then they order all the concessions online. So everything's delivered to them. And then they go into their spot. They're six feet apart from each other. They feel safe. It's helped us pay employees. It's helped us pay rent, it's helped us pay utilities, and frankly, you know, some silver linings to all this um, is my usually astronomical uh, power bill is about 20% of what it usually is, because nothing's happening inside here. I think that having the drive-in in this interim has made us less fearful of, of the, the change. The moment you come to the front door, there's door pulls that you can put, use your feet to open the door. We have uh, wipes throughout the theaters. Plexiglass, uh, you know, in between you and the concession worker. Uh, it's like you're working from both sides to, to be safe and yeah. make, make people feel more at ease. And we also have all those markers on the floor, the social distancing markers. All the staff, no exceptions, will be both temperature checked and wear masks. And I've ordered a lot of disposable masks to offer to our patrons. I'm going to, we're going to make a policy to start that all patrons in common spaces wear masks. In between the shows, we'll wipe everything down with a Vericide uh, hospital grade cleaner. I've got an electrostatic sprayer where we talked about that. We did, but you, you understand that better than I do. <laughs> when they tell us that we can open, we're going to, and they say 50%, we're going to open at 25% because we want to learn and know our system properly. It was good training for us and for the staff. We probably separate every other row at least, but at least four seats between groups of six and maximum of, of 10. So there'll be, at 25%, there'll be lots of space for people to, to, to feel comfortable. I don't have Together. any doubt. I don't have any, it's, it's, you know, they all in different times in history, oh, you know, movie business, oh, theaters, people won't go to, and people have always gone to movie theaters, no matter what, because it's the, it's an inexpensive form of getting out with your friends and family. And no word yet on when the Browns will be able to reopen, but when they do, they tell us they'll keep the drive-in going anyway. We certainly wish them well. Meantime, South Carolina is another area seeing virus cases rise since reopening. Joey Welling is a fitness trainer and the owner of Exemplar Fitness down in Charleston. After shutting down and reopening now, 
he is having problems and he joins us tonight. Joey, it's good to talk to you tonight. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Tell me your story. So it's a pretty long story. March 18th, we had to shut down the gym. Um, We have personal trainers, open gym members, and then classes. And so what happened was we had to shut down the gym. We had to take our classes outside to the parks. And then for about two weeks, we did that. Then they shut down the parks. So then we went to online classes through Zoom. We did that for about two months. Then finally, they allowed us to open back up the gym. Um, and occupancy for us in Charleston was five people per every thousand square feet. And so that allowed us to have about 30 people in the gym. Our classes have 10 to 20 people in the, in each class. So we decided to keep the classes outside back in the parks when they open the parks up again mm-hmm. to allow more room for personal trainers. Um, so this was great, good. We did this for about two weeks, and then we decided to bring the classes back inside the gym and just keep it to five people. So we did that um, pretty well. The attendance grew for about three weeks for the entire gym, and then all of a sudden we've hit this new spike over the last couple of weeks, and now we are taking our classes back outside. Yeah, I mean, the, we know what's happening in the state. My conversation earlier with uh, Dr. Gottlieb, whom you may know, uh, certainly emphasized a pickup in, in cases down there. You've actually had a, a couple of employees and some of your own members test positive for the virus lately, haven't you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We've had a, a couple employees and a few members, but it's it's happening everywhere. It's every restaurant almost, um, a lot of gyms around the area. So the the gym itself now, the, the physical gym, the the indoor space is closed. Is is that correct? And you're just doing these classes back outside? No, no, no. So we have the gym open. We just decided to take the classes back outside um, because of the spike to try and make people feel a little bit more comfortable. Oh, but you're actually still having people come inside to the gym, even though you've had some of your own people as well as some members test positive. Why not just, I, I hate to say this, I, I know that how starved people are for, for business. You're a business owner. I know you, you need people. Um, any thoughts about just yep. shutting down altogether? So we did have those thoughts. Um, as soon as they, um, around June 8th, June 1st, when we were allowed to get back in the gym, we decided to hire two professional cleaning companies, two separate ones, and we shut down the gym every day from 1 to 3 o'clock, and they come and clean during then, and then we have another team that comes and cleans later that night. Um, we did think about closing when a couple of our members did test positive, but once again, our business and a lot of other businesses just can't afford to keep stopping and then restarting. So we're trying to meet halfway and do some classes outside and limit the number of people, do temperature checks up front. So just trying to modify and make the best of it. Yeah, I hear you. I, I truly do. I know how difficult it must be. Uh, and I wish you well. I, I hope we talk to you again soon. Joey, you take care. All right. So much, Scott. All right, that's Joey Welling joining us. Tonight's top stories, a shout-out for the restaurants like we always do, operating in a time of crisis coming up next. The five restaurants and our nightly shout-out to those operating in the face of this crisis. The Old Town Junction 
in Santa Clarita, California, Angel City Deli in Seattle, the KC American Bistro in Naples, Florida, Oju in New York City, and Big Daddy's Barbecue and Soul Food in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture as well. We'll get it on TV. On day 179 of the coronavirus crisis, the latest headlines for you now. Texas pausing additional phases of its reopening as cases surge there. Unions representing U.S. airline workers asking Congress to extend payroll aid through March or hundreds of thousands of employees could lose their jobs. The Dow today rising some 300 points. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. And Shark Tank is coming up next. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.